Um, it's a joy today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Romans, to the book of Romans. And we will be focusing on the seventh chapter of this book, looking primarily at verses 14 to 25. And I have entitled this sermon, Finding Assurance in the Midst of Sin, or Remaining Old Self. And before we read the text, allow me to just pray briefly. Gracious Father, we come before you now looking to your word for guidance. I look to you, Father, for the enablement to preach this text clearly with passion and with love that you'd be honored. Let it penetrate our hearts and do what it's designed to do, change us and conform us into the image of our Savior so that you are glorified ultimately. We pray in Christ's name. So let us go ahead and begin by reading our text together. We are in Romans chapter 7. And we'll be looking at verses 14 to 25. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. For we know, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. For what I am working out, I do not understand. For I am not practiced to agree with the law, that it's good. So now, no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that is in me, evil, is present. In me, who wants to do good? For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind in serving the Lord, the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Well, now, this section in Romans is a very important section to understand, and it helps us to understand the makeup of the believer. This is designed to help us to understand the composition of the Christian. And receiving this truth is vital. It's nourishing to us. It positions us so that we can live unto the Lord in an accurate and biblical way. Now, currently in the church, there's an issue. Lack of assurance in our faith is a prevalent issue in the church. And working in the biblical counseling department, I receive many phone calls from people outside the church wrestling with assurance. Christians of all ages wrestling with assurance. And even last week in Anchored, we had a question asked, you know, how can I help somebody who is lacking assurance that is wrestling with sin? And in his book, Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith, Joel Beakey says that the reason why the increase of assurance is this. He says, when the church, the church's when the church emphasis on earthly happiness overshadows her conviction that we are traveling through this world and on our way to God and glory. 
He continues, the need for a biblically-based doctrine of assurance is compounded by our culture's emphasis on feeling. How we feel often takes precedence over what we know or what we believe, end quote. Why Christians claiming Christ lack assurance? And one of the main reasons he points out is this. He says, it's our history and present experience with sin with sin. So this is where our text's value shines through today. Our assurance is going to be directly tied with our understanding. And it's going to be directly tied with the understanding of the thing that you're wrestling with. When you're wrestling with something and there's confusion, it's naturally going to decrease your confidence. There's always going to be a level of uncertainty where there is no clarity. So our text today is going to strive to give us a better understanding of sin, of our makeup as Christians, so that we can live in assurance. Now, fortunately, through the Lord's infinite wisdom, he gives us these truths. And through the Apostle Paul today in our favor, that brings clarity to common questions that we hear and that we ask. Questions of, if I'm saved, why do I sin? If I'm saved, why do I continue to sin? Or, if I'm saved, why do I continue in sin? Why am I enslaved by a particular sin? Why have I not conquered that sin yet? Or, if I'm saved, yet I still sin, what was I freed from? What was I freed from? Maybe I wasn't, because I have sin. And our section today is going to answer these questions, give us the information we need to answer these questions in our own heart. Now, like the letter of Ephesians, the book of Romans is divided up into two main parts, where Paul spends the first half of the book um, discussing doctrine, the foundational truths, the various foundational things that our faith is built on. And then in the second half, he moves to sort of the practical implications of what it looks like to live these things out. And our section is in chapter 7, which falls in the first is doctrinal truth, foundational truth that the Christian needs to understand so that he can build upon it, and he can have strength in his faith and confidence and assurance. So we see its value. Now, the purpose of this letter, the purpose of Romans, the Apostle Paul's mission here is to expound the gospel to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And his goal is that they would share together the fact that they both have been accepted by God. Both groups, Jews and Gentiles, have been accepted by God and have the opportunity to receive the righteousness of Christ. And he wants them to accept that and share that so that together they have unity in the church. And they're unified. And they're unified in the one and most important thing, which is righteousness that comes not from the law, but righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ alone. The common problem of depravity. He takes the time to segment the different groups, starting with the Jews, going to the Gentiles, and then referring to all people explaining depravity, explaining the, the uh, onslaught of sin in the person's life. Then he goes on to resolving that only through justification by faith in Jesus Christ that righteousness can remedy this depravity. The only solution to the depravity that he lays out in these doctrinal understandings is the righteousness of Christ. And the word remedied here is a clue to us having a deeper understanding of sin. And then the Apostle Paul flows into 
describing sort of the combination of this depravity alongside this imputed righteousness, and then we see what it looks like in our section. The conflict of two natures. The conflict of two natures. And when we see this text within the context of God's work of regeneration, this is where we find the hope. We're talking a lot about sin. We're talking a lot about depravity. We're seeing the struggle between two natures. Yet when this text is seen through the context of the Lord's work of regeneration in the life of the believer, we begin to see hope. We begin to see the clarity of what Paul and God wants us to see in the midst of our sin so that we can, in our current state, have hope and have assurance. And we're going to break down our text into four simple sections. Paul is showing us four ways that regeneration, the regenerating work of the Lord, must bring hope and assurance in the midst of sin. That will be 13 through 17. The second point will be a regenerated dissatisfaction, verses 18 through 20. The third point is a regenerated agreement, 21 to 23. And then the fourth point is a regenerated response, verses 24 through 25. We have a lot to go through, so I'm going to move fast. So let's begin as Paul points to our very first point, which is the regenerated identity. And he says this, Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. For what I am working out, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. And I think we can all confidently say that we have had thoughts like this. This is our thinking experience. And it naturally will bring a level of discouragement. I'm sure we've all felt discouragement in life. And most likely, if you're honest with yourself, you can tie it into sin in your life. Some sort of sinful event. And maybe that leads to doubt. Definitely zaps joy. But let's, for a moment, take confidence that This is the Apostle Paul here. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's giving us a description of his current state. He is writing that he, the Apostle Paul, was wrestling in this way, wrestling just like this. Now, there is a tremendous amount of debate over this text, tremendous. And the debate is whether or not Paul is describing a believer or an unbeliever. That's the general uh, argument. But when it becomes clear how spot on this is to our life, how much we can understand, this is me. This is not a foreign thing. We are not stretching the text. We are not creating something that does not exist. This is, in fact, a picture of us. Martin Luther says, St. Paul shows us how spirit and flesh struggle with each other in one person. He gives us an example so that we might learn to kill sin in our lives. Now, Paul's struggle alone, the fact that he, him struggling, should give us some hope. But that's not where our hope is founded in. Now, he starts by acknowledging his belief in the law. He says, we know that the law is spiritual. Spiritual means that it is from the Holy Spirit. It has divine origin. 
It is pure. It is holy. It is from God. This is the law, meaning it has infinite value. And he's saying, I believe the law is true. And since he believes that the law is true, and since he believes that the law is perfect and holy, which it is, it requires holy and pure obedience to it which then requires a sincere fear of the Lord. I mean, that requires a true fear of God for someone to say, this is God's word. It is spiritual. It is holy. Unbelievers do not claim this. This is a claim that the believer who has been regenerated in his identity stays, states. Now, this is a continuation of Paul's argument from the last section. In the previous section, if you read through Romans, you will see that the Apostle Paul is sort of defending his view on the law. He's bringing the gospel to the Romans, and now he's defending certain parts of his, of his teaching. And he sums up his agreement, saying th- that there is value, arguably the most difficult element of this section. Paul says, while the law is holy, and I agree that, and I affirm that wholeheartedly, he says, while that is true, I'm fleshly. I'm fleshly. And this is, in fact, what the law was designed to expose in the first place, right? Another sign of hope and identity here. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is designed to point to our inability to obey it. It's designed to point to our sin. Yet the law has no ability to correct it. It has no ability to remedy the issue. That only comes through the regenerating work of Christ. Now, notice an important distinction here in this text. He says, he is, he does not say he is in the flesh. He says, I'm fleshly. I'm made of flesh. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, notice the elements of being in the flesh. It's important to see what he broke down there. A mindset on, hostile towards God, does not submit to God. In fact, it can't. It doesn't have the ability to submit to God's law and agree that it's truth. And we see a contrast, that these things are a contrast, which what we will see building within our text helping us understand that we, in fact, are building the identity of someone who is regenerated. Now, Paul says that he is fleshly. He's saying, I'm in this body, right? I'm living in this flesh. This, I do, I am in this body. And we will see ultimately that that is the problem, that ultimately, in and of myself, I am unable to obey the law. And he says that this body, this fleshly thing that I'm living in, has been sold into bondage under sin. What does that mean? Well, we know that as believers, we still sin. Right? I don't think I need to convince any of you of this. And this is why this passage is so relevant, because we all know, in fact, that we do sin. And we all have this conflict. And in fact, we should have this conflict, by the way. This conflict is a normal thing. This thing that we're describing and we're learning, we will see is normal, and it is expected, and it is necessary. As we move through towards the end, you will see that this is a necessary conflict. Every time we sin, we should experiencing 
a conflict that we are. The law is wonderful. I don't want to. Why? Where do these things come from? Thoughts that come out of nowhere. Responses that you didn't anticipate. Why? What is it? Well, we know it's our flesh. It's the bodies that we live in are, in fact, in bondage to sin. It is the source of where our sin comes from. Do we need to taught, be taught how to sin? Do I need to teach any of y'all how to sin? Do we need to teach children how to sin? No, they just know how to sin. We need to teach them how not to sin because they're hardwired with sin. The body is hardwired with the desire to sin. It's in bondage to it. And if you didn't know that, now you do. This is the reason why we look forward to glory, is it not? This is the reason why we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to the day that we will have a glorifying, this source of sin. That's why glory is so valuable. On top of the fact, the real reason for glory being so valuable is that we will be with our Savior. We will be with our Savior. And it's that desire that really underpins the motivation in the heart underneath this guy who's upset about sinning, wrestling with this. Because through his love for his Savior, obviously there's going to be, as you'll see, a discontentment and a hatred for sin as he's pointing out. So we look forward to the day we're in glory. I can't wait to get rid of this body. Why? Because then I will have pure thoughts and I will not be wrestling with the burden of sin, this struggle, this ugly conflict. And not only that, but I will be giving God the glory that he deserves. Because I'll tell you right now, on our best day, what we are giving Christ is not even an ounce of what he deserves. Our flesh is in bondage. This is the reason why we look forward to glory. As I said, this is the reason why we're excited because we acknowledge that this body is a source of flesh. Now, this is where we start to build the identity even more. You'll notice that there are two eyes in our first section, two eyes. This is where Paul is identifying himself, I, I. And I'm going to have to move quick here. Paul is starting to build a complete picture of his identity as a believer, right? And he first states the fact that he is living in his fleshly body. We know that, which is corrupted with sin. That's his first I. Then he states a second I in verse 17 where he says, the sin that I commit, right? I acknowledge that it dwells in me. I acknowledge that it comes from my fleshly part, me, it's me, meaning my physical. But he says, it's not I. His second I, it's not I. I acknowledge my sin comes from me, my flesh, yet it's not I. And he is pointing to the fact that in the truest of sense as believers, or our capability and our capacity to sin. No. What he is defined by is what we see in between those two verses. But we start our identity by saying, Paul is identifying that he is not identifying with his sin solely. It's a part of him, but he is saying it's not I in the truest way. Well, what's he referring to? Obviously, he's referring to his regeneration, his identity in Christ, the fact that he has received the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is who he is. That is his identity. And that is what's enabling him to have this conflict, to have this thinking in and of himself. That is what's enabling him. And he knows that. And we need to know that. He points to that in the, in the, in the middle two verses, 15 and 16. He says, For what I am working out, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like. But if I do the thing that I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So in between here, Paul is speaking from his regenerated self, and he's identifying things that only that uh, regenerated self can identify. It's a part of him that has been changed in salvation. Now, we know that the flesh is not redeemed. When we are saved, the flesh is not redeemed by the Lord. The spirit man is. This flesh stays. Adios. Get rid of it. It's going into the ground where it belongs. The inner man is what is redeemed. How do we know? Paul says, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Paul's aware, hyper aware of his sin. Not only is he aware, willing to acknowledge, yeah, the law is true, the law is from God, but he's acknowledging that he hates this sin. Now, this is a clear indication of his salvation. Because all sin, in the way that the Lord God identifies sin, and accept that as the definition, accept that as right or wrong. Because it's the Holy Spirit that what? Removes our heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh. Only then do we have the ability to see sin for what it is. So in the midst of this turmoil, this sinful turmoil, the apostle Paul is saying, yes, sin. Yes, it's in me, but it's not I. What's I? The fact that I have been regenerated. The fact that I can see this sin. This is where we start to see the assurance come in the midst of sin. Because we all wrestle with sin. We all get beat down by sin. What the Apostle Paul is saying, in the midst of this, stop. Stop and reflect on what is actually true. Yes, you are a sinner. But no, it is not who you are. How do I know? Because you hate sin. Because you have what only you can have. You understand and you love the Lord and you love the law. You have the same affections. You agree with God's righteousness. You have the same dissatisfaction that God has. That should bring hope. You start to see yourself. Why do I have this? Why do I have this disdain? Why do I have this anger, this upsetness towards sin? Why? Why is that in there? Because God put it in there. You can see where that leads you towards Christ in the midst of sin. That leads you in the direction that you want to go. Remember what, the Paul, uh, what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are only able to be discerned when your spirit has been regenerated. Only then. Otherwise, foolishness, folly, not agreeing with God. It's foolishness. Our sinful condition after salvation is designed to emphasize the change that has taken place. It's not designed to drive us into lack of assurance. It's not designed to push us away from God. Our sinful condition after salvation is designed to emphasize the change, emphasize the new identity that has taken place. Remember, this section is on the backs of the previous sections outlining the depths of depravity for the Gentiles, for the Jews, for everyone across the board. And Paul is saying, yes, let us acknowledge that in the midst of this struggle with sin, our identity is not in sin. And this identity only comes from regeneration. We have to rest in that. We have to be excited about that. So you're saying, Matt, in the midst of sin, when I'm the Lord, always, again, I say rejoice. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Can't be in the Lord unless you have been regenerated by the Lord, unless you are a Christian. You are rejoicing for the fact that I am in Christ. I have been forgiven. 
And in the midst of this sin, it's not who I am. It's part of me. I'm responsible, but it doesn't identify me, which means it doesn't dictate how I'm going to respond to it. I'm going to be joyful even through this difficulty, even through this conflict, and we'll see it leads there. Identity is not in sin. We must recognize, of course, we must recognize and hate sin, but in the same way, stop and say, this is no longer I. It is not my identity, and it does not necessitate my lack of salvation, talking about sin. But it is a reality of my Christian life. Now, there must be a level of acceptance of our ability to sin and thing that we have the ability to sin and all of the implications. When I know that I'm capable of sinning, yet I know that I'm capable of identifying it, means I have the responsibility now to do what the Bible says to address it. The fact that I have the ability, now we can see why it's so important that we acknowledge our ability to acknowledge sin, because it gives us a responsibility now. Oh yeah, you know your sin? Well, you better handle it. You better deal with it. Every text in the scripture now becomes applicable to you because you've acknowledged in your normal turmoil of life that you're a sinner. It's also hope in there because yes, here's a conflict and yes, I'm dissatisfied in my hatred for sin, but guess what the Lord has provided? Not just <laughs> regeneration through righteousness, which is salvation, but also the remedy for down here. We're not just left in our sin, are we? Let's keep it moving of sin. Paul is pointing to the regenerated dissatisfaction, a dissatisfaction with sin that comes from being saved. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. Paul emphasizes again, sin comes from my flesh. He's saying willingness is in me. I'm willing. I have a desire to hate sin, to obey the law. I love it. I have that desire. And that willingness only comes through true salvation. Have to stop in the midst of difficult to have to stop and analyze what is truly in your heart because what's in there is the most valuable thing. I hate this sin, Lord. I hate it. I hate it. I hate, I hate it. I hate sin. What a joyful thing to experience in the midst of trial because that only comes from salvation. And part of our regeneration is that we are dissatisfied with sin. You but I want to honor the Lord. Part of the package of salvation and regeneration is that I love Lord. I love the Lord. I love Christ. I love Him. And I tell Him that I love Him. And if I'm going to do that, my life better be following suit, which means I'm dissatisfied with my sin. I want to give Him glory with my life. I want to read everything in this book, and I want to apply it so that I can give Him glory. And guess what? I am dissatisfied when I'm not. And we need to up our dissatisfaction game, if, if that's a thing. Up it. I want to be more dissatisfied with my lack of obedience and my lack of love. And we can do that. But acknowledging that dissatisfaction must bring hope because it only comes from God. We hate our sin and we're motivated to do what is right in the eyes of God. But we find ourselves doing what we hate. Verse 19 says, For the good that I want, I don't do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. This is because... And Paul tells us that in Romans 6, 6, right? We know that our old self was crucified and with him, crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. Brought to nothing does not mean non-existent. Brought to nothing means 
It's no longer in control. And I don't need to, I don't need to convince you that it, it brought to nothing means non-existent because it's here in our lives. It is there staring us in the face. So let's understand it. It means that we are no longer enslaved to it. And now we have the ability to choose not to live by it and to do it gladly. But it still has an influence over us. And that necessitates that all the instruction in Scripture to discipline ourselves and to live is still there. And my dissatisfaction will motivate me to do that, to believe and to follow. Verse 20 says, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want... I am no longer the one working it out, but it's sin that dwells in me. Again, Paul pointing to where we find our identity. He stops to point out, I am no longer the one. Are you seeing seeing the pattern? Paul's building a pattern here of his acknowledgments. I'm doing what I hate. I'm doing evil. I'm sinning against the Lord. But I'm acknowledging at the same time that I am not defined by that. That is not what determines my assurance of salvation. And this is not going to determine the amount of effort that I'm going to give. This is not going to determine how I walk the worthy walk. And it's not going to have an effect on my obedience, an effect on my joy. Why? Because I see I hate those things. I see my heart and so does God because he placed it in me and I acknowledge that because I hate sin and I love him. That's the distinction. That is the dissatisfaction that comes from regeneration that Paul points to. And it's designed to point back to the gift of salvation. It's designed to point back to salvation. It's not designed to point away from God. Again, we are pulling out of this the reasons that we can have assurance in the midst of sin. Paul's third point is this. Regenerated agreement. Now, you'll notice that a lot of these things are very, you know, sort of intertwined and related. Verse 21 says, I find then that the principles, the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. Yes, evil exists. I'm acknowledging it once again. A guy who wants to do good, evil also exists. Yes, it exists. Yes, this is a reality, but I am not swayed away from my faith. I'm not going to doubt my assurance because of it. Verse 22 says this, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. It says in the ESV, I not only delight in the law. The NASB says, I agree with it. So here we have an understanding that in the regenerated heart is an agreement of what God says and what God labels and what God defines in His law. And he's saying, your flesh is capable. Evil is present. And I agree with that. I know it's there. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to blame it on the devil. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to be self-righteous and try to proclaim myself as less of a sinner and boast. My inner man loves Christ, has repented of my sin, has put all my trust in the imputed righteousness mercifully given to me. But I do see something. I do. And this is something of great importance for the believer to understand. I will rest in Christ alone. I will. I have to. While I see sin in my life. While I struggle. 
And then we understand that the entirety of Scripture is moving towards a goal, giving me the tools that I need in the midst of being a sinner to give God glory. Verse 23 says this, But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. I see a distinction in what my members want satisfied with that. There is an internal war waging on. It's an internal war. And notice he says members, which again is the physical flesh, right? The members of our body. And none of us, again, should be surprised by this. If you're a believer striving to give God glory with your life, you will notice it is hard It's not easy. It's so difficult. But this should bring a level of comfort. The idea is, let me make this understanding, these things that I've heard many times. We know these truths, but now it's time to understand that they are designed to lead us closer to the Lord and not into a lack of assurance, not into doubt, not into worry, not into fear. It's prevalent. Why do you have a lack of assurance? Oh, I'm in sin. You're in sin? How do you even know that? I hate it. You hate it? Yes. I affirm. The assurance is spewing out of that. We just need to see. And Paul's helping us now. It's the internal war that's waging on. Now, we get comfort from this. The sinfulness of our flesh does not go away while we are down here. Right? This is a reality that we need to accept, which again puts us in a position to say, I need to be taking fighting my sins serious, which as a response says, I need to be reading the book. Right? We understand that in order for us to grow in, in our faith and in order for us to, to progress through sanctification, we need to have more understanding. Right? And that's the point of this whole thing, that more understanding brings assurance. More understanding positions me to be a better Christian, to bring God glory with my life, and I want that. That comes from the book, right? Which is a reminder. If I can acknowledge all of this, it's my duty now to go to handle this issue and that issue and that issue. Not going to just go through the cycle, coming out of assur- with assurance and being happy. No, that dissatisfaction and that hate for sin drives us further in our life, practically, to the Word of God, to the messages that we need. We must constantly be learning and growing. The Word of God then becomes our source. If I can see this cycle so clearly, obviously the the Word of God must become that much more valuable to me because it's going to help me through this. I need that. And it's our only option to wage war against this thing. There's a war going on, well, it's our job to be a part of it. And we can't be a part of it unless we acknowledge it. So not only are we acknowledging salvation through our understanding of sin and this conflict, we are finding ourselves in the middle of a battle. What's my job? To get down, walk away from the part of who I am. I'm only a part of this because I've been saved. Let me get in the fight. Let me get in this battle. That's the Christian life. Think about what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, good thing, seek the things that are above, amen where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Yes, we affirm this. This is amazing. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Purposeful effort there. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Amen. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Amen. Hallelujah. We praise God for that truth. Have confidence in your salvation. Right? Be strong. Yet at the same time, what does verse 5 say? Or what is earthly in you? It's a requirement. This is a requirement. What is still in you that the Apostle Paul is showing us needs to be put to death. And then he lists all the common sins that we do, just in case, just in case you're missing the reason why you need to put that thing to death. He lists it for you. Sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And he throws some more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away. Fight the fight of faith. It's there. Understand how it's designed to point to who you are in Christ and then fight. Fight it. Let it build you up as in, in your strength. Let it build you up as a warrior in Christ. Not steal your assurance. Not push you away. Not put you down. Build you up. The fight is designed to make the warrior aware. The warrior in the battle must be ready to go. Nobody wants to be in the battle with the guy next to him saying, I just wish this wasn't here. I just wish it was all going away. It's like, buddy, look around you. Look in you. It's not going anywhere. While you're down here, you are in this body. Let it draw you to Christ. Let it increase your assurance and your love for the Lord. We were once slaves to all of those things that he mentions there. We were once slaves, but now we've been freed from this slavery. And you have the ability via the Holy Spirit to put them to death. Mortify these things. John Owen, Mortify the Flesh. That's your homework. Everyone go get that book and read it. Why? We need to. We're not letting our sin deter us and, de and determine our motivation. No, we're letting it point to the reality of what we have in Christ. We've got to remember that we did not lose our sinful nature when we were saved. We were freed from its enslavement. Wow. And then we were given the status, the status and we were given the righteousness that we did not deserve. And we've been given the ability to acknowledge it. And we've been given the ability via the Holy Spirit to fight it for the glory of God. Because that's what he instructs us to do. Okay, so now, is all of this just casual acknowledgement? Are we just going to celebrate that we can acknowledge this? Can I acknowledge that stuff? It sounds true. Yea, for us to have a biblical understanding of the complexities of man. No, our second point, or our last point rather, is this. It's a regenerated response to this scenario. And he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? There should always be a deep sorrow for sin. Absolutely. We should hate sin, a million percent. And we should long for the day that we are in those glorified bodies and not sinning. We should hate it. Why? Because it's, sin is against the Lord. Every time we sin, even against each other, in our minds, it is an offense to our Father in heaven. It is against Him. No, Lord, it was against Joe. It wasn't against you. I sinned against Him. No, sin against both. That should mean something to us. 
We can't brush off, Lord, I was just angry in the car again. I'm sorry. Yes, you should be sorry. That is a wrong thing. That is a sin. But it is a sin, in fact, against a holy God. The seriousness of sin. And Paul here is understanding it to the point where he calls himself a wretch. I'm a wretch. And you and I, guess what? We're wretches. We are wretches in our sinfulness. Our depravity goes deep. Now, we're not as bad as we, we could always be, but every part of us has been touched by sin. That is why understanding the doctrine of depravity is so important. We do not have the ability to save ourselves. Only the Lord can step in and give us this regeneration. And how much more should that increase our gratitude for it? This is why the doctrine of election is so important, because you did not need to be saved. You did not need to be chosen, but you were. And not everybody will be chosen. That increases the value of this salvation tremendously. My goodness. And on top of that, the fact that I am recognizing through this text and through my own honesty that I am wretched in my sin. The punishment of eternal separation from God in hell. We deserve that. Everybody know that? We deserve that. It's a part of our wretchedness. And it's okay to acknowledge this. It's okay to acknowledge this. Paul, why are you being so dramatic? You're, I'm wretched. Is he just being dramatic? No. He's pointing out the depths of the truth here, but it's okay because it's designed to do one thing. It's okay because of where it leads us. Paul resorts, resorts to the only proper conclusion. It's the same conclusion that we should all have in the midst of this turmoil in our lives, and it's this. Every time we sin... Every time we find ourselves in a struggle against sin, this, this scenario, we should end up here. We should end up here. Every moment we sin, we should end up here. Even the littlest of sin, we should end up here. Where is it? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have nothing to give. My assurance is not based on my performance. I am not justified by assurance, not justified by a feeling. I'm justified by faith. How do you know you're saved? Because I feel like it. No, because I have assurance. No, we will have assurance, but that is not what justifies us. That is not what proves our faith. Our faith proves our faith, and our understanding proves our faith, and that entire scenario proves our faith if we are agreeing with that identity. Immediately, I am thankful. Immediately, in my wretchedness and my sinfulness, I am thankful immediately because I have been given undeserved mercy and grace. And my sinfulness is a reminder of it. My sinfulness is a reminder that it's undeserved. We must pull out our card and say, here's what I believe in. We have to live with it. In counseling, I do this. We have to live with our salvation here so that it affects everything that's in front of us. Everything goes through this, the gratitude of what Christ gave me. I will give him glory for this valuable thing that I have called salvation. And since life is a perpetual battle, since this is something that we will be doing while we are down here, guess what? I am in perpetual thanksgiving, and I am in perpetual gratitude, and I am in perpetual reminders of what Jesus Christ did for me. And that's the point because I am not important. I am not important. I need to get out of my own way. Jesus Christ is important. My existence is for Christ. 
My existence, my breath, my very, the blood in my veins is designed to bring glory to Christ. And this scenario, who I am, must do that. We must allow this to lead us to Christ. He deserves nothing less. We have to get out of our way, see ourselves for who we are, but let it lead us to where we need to go, which is a perpetual thanksgiving for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Every moment, every sin shouldn't just be, Lord, I'm sorry. It's, Lord, I'm sorry, but thank you for the mercy. Here's another reason why it's undeserved, but thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. This is a picture of a maturing Christian. Because as we grow, what do we do? We become more sensitive about our sin. We learn how it goes deeper, right? And that sin in our flesh doesn't go anywhere. It's still here. Now, we grow spiritually, mature. But what does that mean when we grow spiritually mature? It means we grow in our understanding of how sinful we are. And our love grows, and our gratitude for Christ grows, and our desire to honor Him grows, and not away. It increases assurance. It does not contradict Christ or question. It emphasizes Christ. It runs to Him, and it rests in Him. So, the natural believer should conclude, just like Paul concludes here, he says, so then, on the one hand, I'm myself, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. On the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. This is what it is. It's what it is. I will now strive not to let it steal my joy. Now that I understand it, I have a responsibility. Now that I understand what's going on, here's what it is. I have, an, I have a responsibility to let it drive me to the Lord because I understand that salvation I understand that the freeing of my enslavement to my sin has enabled me to see this. And now that I see this, I have a responsibility to allow it in my heart to drive me to assurance in Christ. Longer exclusively sinners. Amen. And one day we will be exclusively saints. But for now, we're in between as sinner saints designed to be reliant upon our Savior, designed to struggle with the flesh so that our gratitude for being saved and our gratitude for what is to come grows and increases and our love and joy for Christ does as well. Until the greatest thing in our life is just the longing to go to be with the Lord, to be that perpetual saint, to love and serve our master in the way that he deserves out of this thing. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for your word and its clarity. It's life-giving. And Lord, we want that because it's designed to lead us to you. And we want to come to you, Father. Let our understanding now of our sin be seen through the regeneration that you have given us that we might understand, that we might fight, that we might turn to you and allow the reality of what we live in to draw us closer to our Savior. And Father, I pray now that if there is anyone in this room who has not experienced the regenerative work of Christ in their life, that they would say to themselves, yeah, I do see what this person is talking about. I do see that there is a holy God who has given us a righteous standard and we all have broken it. Father, do a work that they would come to you and repent. They would repent and turn to you. Bless this church, Father, as you have so graciously. Bless this congregation here, this group. 
Let their love for Christ grow, bottom of our hearts. We give you glory, honor, and praise in Christ's name. Amen.